We turn now to the second lesson found in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the 11th chapter. Listen again for God's word. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I receive what the Lord, from the Lord, what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you who are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. The word of the Lord. Harvey Cox, noted theologian and retired professor from Harvard Divinity School, tells the story of dating a young Catholic woman who was a year ahead of him in school. She had gone off to college while he was at home. They were together their first Christmas, and he went with her to a beautiful Catholic Christmas Eve Mass. Think St. Andrew with higher liturgy. As the communion was happening, the girlfriend who had taken anthropology in her first semester at college leaned over and whispered to Harvey, that's just a primitive totemic, you know? A a what? A primitive totemic ritual. Almost all pre-modern religious and tribal groups have them. They are services when worshipers bind themselves together and to the power of the sacred by a cannibalistic act of ingesting the manna of a dead God. Communion, Cox noted, was never the same again. (laughs) This morning, before coming to our table, I invite you to reflect with me on what's behind that or some of the meaning associated with it, hopefully in ways that make communion more appealing, make coming to our Lord's table more 
of what we want to do. As we think about the Lord's Supper, there's too much to say in one sermon. In fact, this sermon might get a little long as it is. So I want to look at three questions. Who gets to come to the table? Who serves at the table? And what happens at the table? That sounds like a short sermon, doesn't it? <laughs> Who gets to come to the table? Or maybe we might say, how do we fence the table? Fencing the table is a term you may be familiar with. It, it describes uh, the idea of putting a fence around the table, that is having rules or things that people have to do or say to meet certain criteria in order to come to the table. First glance sounds like a bad idea, doesn't it? Most of us go, whoa, 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 everyone's invited. But I, I, I ask you, what about that first dinner when Jesus was with his group that we call the Last Supper? It was a small, intimate dinner group. Those were, who, were, who were in the thick of things with him. Presumably there were servers at the dinner and they weren't invited. No women, no children invited. Not because Jesus didn't want them there, I, I suspect, but because in that moment it was a table prepared for those who were going through with him what was happening. So when we think about fencing the table uh, it, it's a spectrum of, of what fences are helpful and what fences are not. When we think about obvious examples in our lives, I bet most of us have a story of being somewhere for communion and figuring out that you're not invited to come to the table. Maybe it's in a Catholic tradition and they don't overtly say it, but you know it. Or maybe you've been at some traditions where, or maybe not today, but certainly in, in the history of some of us can remember the, the, the minister saying who's eligible for the table and who's not. In fact, we have some of that in our own Presbyterian tradition that we'll get to in a moment. The desire to fence comes from a good reason. We hear Paul telling the Corinthians, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. So the idea was to, to help people prepare for the table, to not allow them to come and in a way eat or drink judgment onto themselves. Consider our own Presbyterian tradition. If you go back far enough, some churches had communion tokens. Tokens that you had to have to give to the ruling elder before you could come to the table. And to get the token, you had to meet with the minister or one of the leaders of the church and, and show how you were worthy, how you had repented of your sinfulness, how you were prepared to come to the table. Again, the idea was to, to keep people from coming to the table and putting themselves in danger if they weren't prepared to be at the table. The church I served in Ohio celebrated its bicentennial while I was there. That church had a history of communion tokens. They were old enough to have had that as a common practice. So on one of the communion Sundays during the bicentennial, we made up little tokens. They weren't really nice and, and pretty, a souvenir to have, but, but they were a token, looked like a big coin. And everybody, 
Everybody was given a token. We didn't fence very well with the tokens. Everybody got one. But, but on the way to the table, we had ruling elders, and you dropped your token in before going to the table. Sort of a reenactment of what it might have been like. It was kind of interesting to watch. It got really interesting when one of the members of the church, in fact, a ruling elder himself, came in to see me the next week and said, what in the world were y'all doing? I said, well, everybody got a token. Everybody was invited. It was just historical. And he said, yeah, but it made me feel unworthy. He got a token, mind you, but just the idea that you had to have a token felt like a fence he didn't want. And of course, I suspect we understand that. Think about the shifts you may have noticed over the last 50 or so years here at St. Andrew. If you went back 50 years ago, St. Andrew had a communicants class which youth took to become a member. And only after you became a member could you take communion, thus the title communicants class. Then the denomination widened the gate to all those who had been baptized and trust in Jesus Christ are invited to the table, which meant children were allowed if they had been baptized to come to the Lord's table. Thus the shift from communicants class to now you see the term confirmation class. Because instead of taking the class to become members and take communion, they now take the class, decide to profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and confirm the vows their parents made at their baptism. Now, if you've been listening to the words of invitation, you don't hear words of, have you been baptized? You don't even hear words of, do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? We welcome to the table even those who have not yet professed their faith in Christ. We welcome those who are in doubt. We welcome those who have not yet been baptized. We welcome all those who seek our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we hope and pray as people come to our table that those who have not been baptized will fill the Spirit, call them to the waters of baptism. That those who have yet to discover faith in Jesus Christ will be moved by His gift to embrace Him as their Lord and Savior. Sarah Miles, in her book, Take This Bread, A Radical Conversion, describes her first communion. She writes this, It made no sense. I was in tears and physically unbalanced. I felt as if I had just stepped off a curb or been knocked over painlessly from behind. The disconnect between what I thought was happening, I was eating a piece of bread. What I heard someone else was, say was happening, the piece of bread was the body of Christ a patently untrue or at best metaphorical statement. And what I knew was happening, God named Christ or Jesus was real and in my mouth. It utterly short-circuited my ability to do anything but cry. The gate to our fence is wide open to any and all who seek our Lord and Savior. 
who serves at the table. Let's be clear, Jesus is the host. You may remember a time when, when it was formalized that the first people to be served the bread of the juice were the ministers. It wasn't because ministers had a special place, but it was to make the point that ministers are just guests like everyone else, that the only host at the table is Jesus Christ. Now, we're good Presbyterians with the idea to keep things in order. So we have some rules, don't we? We have officers that serve the elements. You know, you'll recognize them. If you go back a few generations, it would have just been ruling elders. Now deacons and ruling elders. And now in the latest iteration of our directory of worship, the session can invite any church members to serve the elements. Again, a move expanding our understanding of, of what's going on at the table and who's included. That's why we practice the passing of the bread and the juice and wine in the pews. We miss that, I think, a lot of times today. In fact, some studies done recently show that, that people think of receiving it in the pews as, as more private and personal because they, they're by themselves and they're sitting there and they have prayer time or reflective time in between the trays being passed, where intention feels like the community coming forward together. But in fact, it was the opposite in its design. The passing of the pews was to remind us that in the priesthood of all believers, we serve each other. That as you pass the trays, you are serving one another, not dependent on the priest. Being reminded that we all eat of one loaf. This morning, I invite you to reclaim that communal practice as you pass the trays, you don't have to, but I invite you to look at the person you're giving the tray to and smile. It is the joyful feast. And say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And it's both you in second person singular that unique person, but it's you in second person, plural. All of us. We are in it together. We're united with Christ. That's what Paul's writing about. Don't use the Lord's table to divide yourselves. You do that in your homes. You do a good job of it. We know who's rich and who's poor. But at the table, we're all the same. What happens at the table? Remembering happens. We remember what God has done. The great prayer of thanksgiving recites that history in various ways each time we gather. But in our remembering, we also call on God to remember. The Greek word used in, in Paul's letter is connected to the Hebrew word for remember. And the Hebrew connotation is both the remembering but also the asking God to remember. And we're reminded that God's people have a long history again and again of crying out, God, remember us, remember us. And God remembers. 
So we remember what God has done and we call on God to remember us. And we call on God to transform us at the table. What do you, what do you call this table here? Some traditions call it an altar, A-L-T-A-R. We call it the Lord's table in our tradition. Well, we call it lots of things, but if we're on our best language day, we call it the Lord's table. Because an altar is a place where sacrifices are brought. The offering is the place of of blood sacrifices, and we no longer have to bring a sacrifice because Christ has sacrificed Himself for us. Jesus is not on the table as a sacrifice. Jesus is at the table with us as our host. But I like to think of this as an altar table. A-L-T-E-R. The place we come to be changed. To meet the risen Christ. And leave different people. You'll notice today during the hymn before communion that the confirmands will bring in the elements, the bread and the wine and the juice. They've, been, they've helped prepare the elements and we're studying about uh, worship and the sacraments this week and next week in confirmation. Bringing the elements in in, in some traditions is, is what they do. In fact, some traditions, people actually bring bread and wine from their homes. The idea of bringing that, that, the idea of that they bring all that they are to the table. And it's transformed. And then they leave as people changed by the risen Christ. So as you see our confirmands bring in the elements, think about how you come to the table this day. Bring all that you have, all that you are, to be transformed by the risen Christ. Amen.